Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the Donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver Sermon Audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Well, I think many know that this is uh, the last week that uh, Colin and Tanya and their family will be with us as they prepare to move to Connecticut and assume the pastorate at uh, Summers Baptist Church. So as I've kind of been preparing for this time, thinking about this time, uh, I really wanted to leave you all with a word of encouragement today rather than continuing in the Psalms for today. And really, I hope a word of encouragement for all of us as we walk out this life in Christ, as we continue to be faithful as ministers of this new covenant. So pray with me, if you will, and then we'll look at this text. Father, one of the sorrowful and difficult things in life as Christians is the departure of dear brethren. It reminds us again that we are truly one body, one family. And I pray that each of us would be jealously um, desirous of and, and hold as precious the communion of the saints. We know that life is in a constant state of flux, that nothing remains the same. We need only to look in the mirror and we can see that nothing remains the same. And yet we are grateful, even as we've considered today so far, that you remain the same, that your purposes are the same, that your goodness is over all your works, and that wherever we find ourselves, whatever work you have given us to lay our hands to, we know that all of that is working together for the accomplishing of your eternal, all-encompassing work and purpose in Christ our Lord. I pray, Father, that you would encourage us today, that you would exhort us by way of a renewed sense of rightful obligation and privilege and faithfulness, that you will meet my words with your spirit, that you will meet Paul's words with your spirit, that they will be life, that they will be nourishment, that they will be encouragement. As always, we give you this time, we consecrate it to you with the gratitude, the hopefulness, the assurance that are ours in Christ our Lord. Meet us in this time, build us up, Father, truly build us up by your good spirit, it is in Jesus' name and for his sake that we ask. Amen. Well, again, in thinking about how to best encourage Colin and Tanya and their family as they leave, I spent some time this week uh, praying and thinking, and um, whether it was the Lord's leading or not, I don't know, but my mind came back to what has been probably one of the most significant context in my life, my pastoral life, by way of encouragement and, you know, even rightful exhortation. And even though this passage has a kind of pastoral uh, focus to it, it really speaks to each one of us as believers, because it speaks to this great responsibility, this great privilege to be ministers of this new covenant. And even though there's a pastoral aspect to that that's maybe unique to the pastors and shepherds in the church, it really is true of all of us. We are all ministers in that sense. 
So if you would, um, turn with me to 2 Corinthians, and, and I want to pick this up with the last part of chapter 3, but specifically today what I want us to consider is chapter 4. In my judgment, at least, I think that if we were to say what is what passage could we point to as being maybe the clearest or the most uh, uh, powerfully concise treatment on Paul's part of how he viewed life in Christ, uh, my mind would have to go to Philippians chapter 3, how Paul understood what it is to be a Christian. But if we were to say, okay, how did that understanding of life in Christ uh, flesh itself out in Paul's understanding of the ministration of that life, the living out of that life, my mind goes to 2 Corinthians 4. That's where I think Paul best deals with how we should view this ministry of the new covenant, as he calls it. And this context is set in the midst of the larger context, obviously, of 2 Corinthians, in which Paul is really dealing with a very practical issue, which is the, the, the kind of dividedness or the tension that has come between him and the Corinthians. There's even a fault finding on their part. Things have gotten tense between him and them for various reasons. He didn't come when he said he was going to come. They have reached the sense through other men coming to them that Paul is not nearly what he claimed to be. He's not a particularly eloquent man. He doesn't seem to have the kinds of gifts of oratory and presence and power uh, that they've experienced with other individuals that he would even refer to as supposed super apostles. And so it's in, in a, a very real way, Paul's defense of his ministry, specifically his ministry to them, not by way of defending himself per se, but by way of even pointing them to themselves so that they would recognize the impact that he has had on them that he is actually their father in the faith. And by way of that defense, he talks about the glory of this ministry that he has and what that has meant to him, even as he has ministered to them, even as he has poured himself out for them. And what he has realized through that effort over time is hostility, accusation, resentment a kind of tension and dividedness between them. And it's in the midst of that overall treatment that Paul is speaking to the Corinthians and really calling them back to himself to bind their hearts back to him as his heart has always been bound to them, that he gives us this treatment. So even though it is, I think, a very um, generic treatment in the sense that it's Paul's uh, explication, his treatment of this ministry of Christ and the new covenant, it's very much directed towards the practical issues between him and the Corinthians. And as I said, it's ministered to me over the years because pastoral ministry is hard. It has lots of challenges. It has lots of disappointments. It has lots of discouragement. There's lots of times of doubts. There's lots of times of uh, discouragement, even disillusionment. I don't know if it's still true, but the last time I saw the numbers, the average pastor continues in the pastorate for 10 years. I'm not talking about how often they change churches, but pastors tend to last in the ministry 10 years. And it's because it's a hard work. It was hard for Paul. But Paul persevered because of a certain attitude, a certain kind of understanding that encouraged him and made him steadfast. So that's kind of a flyover in terms of what we're going to be considering today. But if you would read with me then, beginning in verse 9 of chapter 3. And in chapter 3 specifically, Paul is contrasting the glory between the covenant of God with Israel and the glory of this new covenant this renewal of the covenant relationship between God and Israel and ultimately between God and the world that has come in Christ. 
So he says in verse 9, 2 Corinthians 3, if the ministry of condemnation, that's how he's referring to uh, the Mosaic uh, covenant, that, that relationship with God through the covenant at Sinai. If the ministry of condemnation has glory, and it did have glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory in comparison on account of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Having therefore such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. We are not as Moses who used to put a veil over his face that the sons of Israel might not look intently at the end of what was fading away. Referring to Moses coming down off the mountain with a veiled face as he spoke to the sons of Israel. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, up till this present time, at the reading of the Mosaic Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is only removed in Christ. To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart, the Israelite people. But whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, unlike Moses, we with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the spirit. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. We have renounced the things hidden because of shame. We don't walk in craftiness. We don't adulterate the word of God. But by the manifestation of the truth, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give light, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that is in the face of the Messiah. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves." What do you mean, Paul? We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body, in our bodies, the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly, continually, always, perpetually, being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And so death works in us, but life in you. And having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke, we also believe, and therefore also we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that the grace of God, which is spreading to more and more people, may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. And therefore, we do not lose heart. He turns his statement full circle. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, the inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, looking not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are passing, temporal, but the things which are not seen endure. They are eternal. They are eternal. As I said, this passage has strong pastoral uh, significance, but it really pertains to every Christian. 
what Paul says here is true of each one of us. We are all ministers of this gospel. We are all ministers of this new covenant. And just to kind of draw out some general things about this passage, I'm not going to deal with it verse by verse, but the first thing that I think is important about this is Paul talks about why he doesn't lose heart. And he had every reason to lose heart. People often say, oh, I wish I could have been Paul walking around healing people, you know, raising the dead, doing this, doing that, doing the other thing. No, we really wouldn't want Paul's life. Much less would we want Jesus' life. Paul had an exceptionally difficult life, and he will go on even to talk about, in kind of ironic terms, his credential as an apostle. His credential being all that he suffered for the sake of Jesus. But the first thing that pops out to me in this is that Paul recognized that his ministry was as an entrustment was grounded in God's mercy. And he's not saying God was merciful in giving me this ministry. And he's really not even saying that God was merciful in saving me and out of my salvation now I have this ministry. He's saying really that that it's the mercy of God in the broadest sense that is the basis of his ministration. Obviously, it pertains to him personally, but it pertains more broadly to God's intent, God's mercy towards his creation. God's mercy that is over all of his works is the reason that Paul has this ministry. The significance of his ministration is grounded in the mercy of God. It was that mercy and the mission of God's mercy that steeled Paul's heart and mind, that enabled him to persevere in faithfulness. He was a servant of the mercy of God towards his works, towards his creation, towards his human creature. Paul recognized that what had been entrusted to him was of cosmic significance. It was bigger than him. It was even bigger than the people that he ministered to. The trust that had been given to him, the stewardship that had been given to him, was because of and unto the fruitfulness of the mercy of God. The second thing that pops out of this to me is that Paul recognized this proclamation, this faithful testimony of this gospel, this new covenant ministration, he recognized it as the manifestation of the truth. We don't adulterate the word of God, but by the manifestation of the truth. Why is that important? It's attesting this message by an orientation and a manner of life, not just by the words that are spoken. The manifesting of the truth. Not the speaking of words of truth, although that's clearly a part of it. The manifesting of the truth. And you see this throughout Paul's epistles. He points to how he was among the saints how he was among the churches, how he served them, how he labored, how he persevered. He didn't just come and preach a sermon and go away or come and hand out a tract and go away. He labored, he labored, he labored, he labored. Day after day, month after month, in some cases, year after year. There was a manifestation of the truth. The gospel is the good news of creational renewal in Jesus, the mercy of God towards his creation. And so the proclamation of that gospel goes beyond doctrinal instruction and good behavior. Paul understood that we embody the proclamation. We manifest the truth as those who embody what we proclaim. Because the proclamation is, again, the heralding of the new creation, the renewal of the creation that God has inaugurated in Jesus 
and that we ourselves are the testimony of. I say it all the time that if we get the gospel right, it should cause people to say, where is it? I don't see it. If the gospel is just, here's how you can be forgiven, and I'm not, again, that is important. But if the gospel is just a formula to get saved, then it doesn't raise the same kind of objection. If the gospel is the good news that in Christ, God has begun this work of creational renewal, if somebody said that to me as an unbeliever, I would say, where is it? I don't see any sign of it. Where is this renewal? Where is this renewal? It is in the human beings who are sharers in the resurrection life of Jesus. The church is the proof of Christ's work. The gospel is the good news of God's renewing of his creation in Jesus, and that renewal exists in the present time in the church, in human beings who are sharers in it. That's what I mean when I say we embody this message. That's why Paul can say we manifest the truth. We don't just come with doctrinal formula to be believed. We manifest the truth. We are the embodiment of the gospel. The gospel confronts the old creation, the present order of things that we see with the new creation. This is Paul in verse 6. God who said light shall shine out of darkness. He's taking his readers back to the creation account, right? In the first instance, Genesis 1. God commanded light to shine out of darkness. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Paul says the God who by the creator spirit called light to shine into and dispel the darkness has now done the same thing by the same spirit in this work of recreation. He has caused the light of his own truth to shine in our hearts to give us the light that is the knowledge of the glory of God that is in the face of Christ. The Christ who is the image of God. It's Genesis language. It's creation language, right? Man as the image of God. Christ is the image of God. God has caused this work of renewal to shine in our own lives, in our own hearts. It's the confronting of the old creation with the new creation. And that rubs up against natural sensibilities, natural perspectives, Spiritual perspectives, religious perspectives, moral perspectives, philosophical perspectives. The reality of new creation, the glory of God in the face of Christ, who is the image of God, which image we now share, rubs up against the natural order. And so we can expect this manifestation of the truth, if it is the manifestation of the truth, we can expect it to meet with confusion, resistance, refusal, opposition, not just within the secular world, within the religious world, within the world of the religion of Christianity. We can expect the new creation, the, the truth as it is in Christ himself, to rub up against the religion of Christianity. And I'll leave that to you to think about. So Paul recognized and had experienced the truth that there are inward and there are outward pressures that come to those who are faithful ministers of this new covenant of new creation in the Messiah. And those pressures and those concerns are always pressing us towards compromise. They're always pressing us towards compromise. Compromise that consists in yielding, compromise that consists in not yielding. 
compromise in yielding. Paul says we don't use deception. We have renounced the things that are actually associated with shame. We don't walk in craftiness. And this is the idea of cleverness. That which catches people's attention. That which seems wise, clever, sophisticated, erudite. We don't walk in that way. Paul even talked in the first Corinthian epistle about how he had come to them in weakness and fear with much trembling. He didn't come in wisdom and erudite speech. He wasn't a great order. He came proclaiming Christ and him crucified. Foolishness to the Greeks, a stumbling block to the Jews, but the power of God. We don't use cleverness, we don't adulterate, we don't change, alter, deviate from the word of God that is true in Christ. It's manifest in us, it's manifest in the lives that we live. So compromise, we often think of it in terms of deviation, changing the truth, walking away, okay, you know, I'm going to round the edges of this thing called the Christian faith or whatever, and it can take that form. But it can also take the form of an intractability. This is what I think. This is what I expect. This is how I want it to be. This is what I believe. Focusing on a a message or, or you know, a, a kind of particular. Uh, agenda that we have. Compromise as pragmatism. We live in a time that's defined by pragmatism and utilitarianism. Does it work? Does it achieve an outcome? Does it look the way we think it should look? It's true in business. It's true in relationships. A lot of marital counseling is pragmatism. What works? What will help? Focusing on achieving outcomes, personal outcomes, ministerial outcomes, social outcomes, political outcomes. It's very easy for us to get swept in to the zeitgeist, to get swept into the inertia of the time, the momentum of the times. even without necessarily compromising the message, just being caught up in what seems to be popular, what seems to work, what seems to accomplish the ends that we seek. Paul says that the faithfulness that he regarded as faithfulness, this manifesting of the truth, amounts to commending ourselves to God. Commending ourselves in God's sight, to every man's conscience. It's not that we don't care about men's consciences, but he says our commendation is ultimately concerned with God himself. We commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God, in the sight of God. Whatever men may say, whatever they may believe, whatever they may expect, whatever they may desire, even whatever we may think or we may desire or we may expect, the divine commendation that Paul says is the testimony of faithfulness comes to those who testify to his son in truth. It's that simple. Testifying to the son in truth, the manifesting of the truth. That's the commendation that God seeks. That's the commendation he approves. He doesn't look at outcomes. He doesn't look at effects. He doesn't look at the things that we take a look at, and that will become more clear. Well, that sort of faithful witness requires insight, devotion, courage. You know, I think it's especially hard in some ways for the vocational pastor because his income's on the line, right? I mean, how did we get the whole culture to roll over 
in all of these political arenas. The threat of losing your job, right? The threat of losing your income. Why do doctors tell you things that aren't true? Because they don't want to lose their job. Why do people tell you things that they know aren't true? Because they don't want to lose their job. They don't want to lose their income. There's a courage that is required to be faithful with the truth. It amounts to knowing Christ in truth and bearing witness to him in truth. While recognizing, as Paul did, that satanic opposition to the truth, satanic opposition to the truth is opposition to Christ, not opposition to religion, not opposition to morality, not opposition to spirituality, not opposition to religious traditions. Paul says that Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Why does it surprise us when those who, in a sense, are led by him appear as super apostles? These men that you're so endeared to, Paul says, appear as angels of light. Well, why wouldn't they? The one whose message ultimately is behind them himself appears as an angel of light. The satanic opposition that works all the time is seeking to lead people away from the truth as it is in Christ himself. Not religion, not morality, not doctrine per se, not ecclesiastical traditions or confessions or anything like that. Not a moral life, not a religious life. The only thing the satanic power cares about is that people fall short of the destiny for which God created them, which is that they would find their own ultimate destiny, identity, fullness in union with Christ himself. And everything else is on the table as long as that particular thing is missed. That means, among other things, again, speaking to life in the church, we have to strive for the gospel. We have to manifest the gospel, striving for the peace and the harmony that are in the unity that is in Christ. Remember when we went through the book of Acts, we saw that one of Luke's key themes of the challenges of the early church was trying to learn this thing called unity and how it's not uniformity. How do you bring male, female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, barbarian, Scythian? How do you bring all these people together and sit them as equals, as brothers and sisters at the same table in the context of a culture in which everything is hierarchical? Men don't sit with women. Slaves don't sit with free. Gentiles are here. Jews are here. That's what Paul is so adamant about. He says to the Ephesians, he says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Okay, well, what does that look like? What does it look like to walk in a manner worthy of your calling? With all humility, gentleness, patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, giving all diligence to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. What does that mean, Paul? There is one body, one spirit, as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. The unity of the church is the shared life of Christ. It's not a shared confession. It's not a shared denomination. It's not a shared language. It's not a shared culture. In fact, it's when manifold differences form one organism that Jesus said the world will understand the meaning of my coming, right? When you are one as the Father and I are one, I and you, you and me. When that is manifest in the world, then the world will understand my coming. They'll know why I came. They'll know what has come through my coming. 
the forming of a new human organism. Not just a bunch of individual people getting right with God. The forming of a new human organism. The Christ himself having his fullness in his church. That's God's design. And the church has always fought this battle of unity. It tears churches apart. And we try to achieve unity by organizing everybody around a confession or a denominational statement or the music or the type of preaching. Are we traditional? Are we contemporary? Do we, you know, and churches are so fragmented because they got the early, you know, blue hair service and then they got the more middle of the road service. Then they got the contemporary service. Then they got this and they got that and the youth are over here and the adults are over here and the kids are over there. And then we're, we're like, okay, isn't this wonderful? No, it's testifying against the truth of the church. And I'm not saying you can't do anything with the youth or whatever, don't get me wrong. But we practice the kind of fragmentation that Christ himself put to death. And we want to call unity uniformity. Make everybody conform, everybody agree, everybody comply. Everybody look the same. Now we have unity. That's not unity. And all of these things are which are ways in which the satanic power works against the manifesting of the truth. So we have to be, we have to be led by, disciplined by, ordered by insight, true devotion, and courage. And in that way, then we can possess and maintain a truly good conscience. Because then and only then we'll know that the resistance and the opposition that we receive is opposition to Christ and his gospel. If we will be faithful in that way, then the opposition that we receive is not against us. Because we're jerks or we're overbearing or we're insisting on having our way, whatever it happens to be. When it is really the manifesting of the truth of Christ, then the opposition that comes against us is opposition against him. And then we can have a good conscience. And that's what Paul says. If our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. This opposition to us It's because we don't preach ourselves. We preach Christ Jesus as Lord. We proclaim ourselves as your servants. That's why we have a good conscience in the things that we endure. That's why we can bear up. That's why we don't lose heart. Because the opposition is the opposition against Christ and his gospel. So the victorious Christian life then is very different than we tend to think about it. And Paul goes on to talk about then what this perseverance in faith looks like. Faithful witness involves manifesting Christ and his gospel, manifesting it, not just speaking of it, manifesting it. And a crucial aspect of that is how we persevere. A crucial aspect of that manifestation is how we persevere. And Paul gives us two dimensions of that, both of which are key and both of which are counterintuitive. They're not what we would naturally think of in terms of this manifesting of Christ, manifesting of the truth. The first is he says that this looks like owning Jesus' power. Owning Jesus' power. Power that is manifest, operative, and triumphant through weakness and suffering. Power that is operative and triumphant through weakness and suffering. Paul keeps setting these things in contrast. Al uk, but not this, but not that, this, but not that. Afflicted, but not crushed. This means hard-pressed. 
It's like pressing something really, really hard, but it's not being crushed. And then he says being perplexed. Not understanding, being perplexed, but not despairing. Being persecuted, that means pursued, driven, driven away, being pursued, somebody chasing after you in a sense, but not abandoned. Even when we're being pursued, we're not abandoned. Struck down, knocked to the ground, beaten down, but not destroyed. Paul says it's this, but not this. It's this, but not this. It's this, but not this. What is it? It's the bearing in our bodies, the dying of the Lord Jesus onto a goal. I've had people say to me in the past, gee, it seems like in some ways God's kind of a sadist. He just wants our face down in the mud. He always wants us suffering. He's always coming against us. He's always beating us down to see if we'll take it. That's not the case at all. It's the bearing of the truth of Jesus' own existence for the sake of the perfecting of his life in us. It's a power of suffering that works out our death with a view to our life in Christ. Always, Paul says, not sometimes, not when things go bad here and there, but as a manner of life, as a, as a way of life, bearing in our present existence Jesus dying. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Again, he refers to him as the image of God. Adam language. Jesus at every point, what was his dying? You say, well, that was Calvary. Okay, well, that was the high point of it. But Jesus' whole life was marked by the kind of dying that Paul is talking about here. It was the constant contradiction of his own Adamic humanness. It was Jesus withstanding his own identity as a son of Adam, tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. It was Jesus living a truly human life in the context of the Adamic broken world and his own Adamic flesh. Paul says we bear that dying in ourselves. That's really what it means to take up our cross. It's to stand in relation to our natural humanness the way Jesus stood in relation to natural humanness. He put it to death every moment, moment by moment throughout his life. The dying of the Lord Jesus. He says this is what we find in our own experience and that is for his sake. Why? Because Jesus just wants to see if we can take it? No, that's not what Paul is saying. It's for the sake of his own goal as the last Adam. It's for the sake of Jesus' own goal, his own consummate glory in having his fullness in a community of people who share fully in his life and likeness. This is the end of chapter 3. We all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Paul is saying the way this works for us is when we look in a mirror, we see the glory of Christ being formed and perfected in us. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord we are being transformed into the same likeness. This is what it means that this suffering is for Jesus' sake. It's for the sake of the purpose of his own life, his own death, his own resurrection, his father's purpose for the world, seen as we have this ministry by the mercy of God. So the victorious Christian life is our victory in Christ, our participation in his life, weakness, suffering, and death that culminate with the glory of the fullness of life. How often do people talk about the victorious Christian life in the way that Paul does? Not very often. Well, it means I'm not going to get sick. Well, it means everything's going to go fine. God's going to fix this. God's going to fix that. The victorious, I'm a king's kid, right? Paul says the victorious Christian life is seeing the image of Christ being perfected in us by the Spirit, which looks like sharing in the life and the death 
of the Messiah himself. And Paul speaks in terms of our bodies. Our bodily participation in Jesus' death is unto our bodily share in his life. We who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Not just in our spirits, in our bodies. How is the life of Jesus manifested in our mortal flesh? Well, in the present time, it's manifested, I think, in the way in which Paul's just expressed. Perplexed, not in despair. Hard-pressed, not crushed. Beaten down, not destroyed. Persecuted, not abandoned. It doesn't mean the absence of difficulty. It means God's sustaining power through the difficulties. Seeing that principle of the life of Christ being manifested in us and being worked out in us. But ultimately, that life of Christ in our mortal bodies looks to the resurrection to come. And that's going to be chapter 5, right? The resurrection to come. The resurrection to come. So the first thing that Paul says in terms of manifesting this this uh, this truth, manifesting this truth, bearing out in our own existence this testimony of Jesus, the first thing is the owning of Jesus' power. What really does that power look like? How does it work itself out in the lives that we live? And the second piece, also equally counterintuitive, is owning Jesus' people. Here's an important pastoral part, probably the part that's helped me the most through the years. This pattern of death unto life that Paul is speaking about is corporate as well as personal. It's corporate as well as personal. And in fact, the personal dimension of it looks toward and serves the corporate. In other words, this personal death unto life serves God's goal of a fully Christified human organism. So is it a personal process? Does it pertain to us as individual human beings? Yes, it does. It's a personal process, but it's not an individual one. It's not discreetly individual. It's our personal death unto life, but it is corporate in both its operation and in its ultimate goal. The Spirit's work of working out in us the dying of Jesus occurs through our involvement with others. And Paul says that it serves the working of life in them as well as us. Look again, I mean, he's talked about what happens to us, our suffering, our bearing in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, all of these things that are very much oriented towards us, the individual believer. But his summary observation in verse 12 is, so it is that death works in us, but life in you. Death in us, but life in you. This is a crucial aspect of Paul's doctrine of the body causing the growth of the body. This work of death unto life that God is doing in us ultimately is not just for our own sake. It's for the sake of his wider work in the lives of human beings, ultimately for the sake of the creation. But here's the important point that I wanted to bring out about this is that often this death unto life that is for the sake of others, that death unto life is precisely experienced or an aspect of it is experienced in this involvement with others. What do I mean by that? The working of this life in others through our own dying often isn't, we don't perceive it in that way. It has a different feel to us. It doesn't feel like God working life in others through the things that we suffer. In fact, often that experiencing of the dying of the Lord Jesus comes through trying and seemingly unfruitful labor to others. 
people, you know, it's kind of a, something we joke at, but we hear people say, I love the church, it's just people I can't stand. And the church would be perfect if it wasn't for people. We all know the trial, the disappointment, the discouragement, the seeming unfruitfulness of our labors on behalf of others. If we don't, we haven't in any sense been faithful as Christians. We've all experienced this sense of unfruitfulness, of trial in laboring on behalf of others. Well, that's an aspect. That's one of the ways in which this death unto life works itself out. It was certainly in the case of Paul. Think again about the context in which Paul is writing. People that he poured himself into for a long period of time. He gave everything he was, everything he had. He sacrificed himself on the altar of the service of the faith of these Corinthians. And now they accuse him and they find fault and they call him a false apostle and he's just in it for the money. And he's not very eloquent and he talks tough in his letters, but he's a weakling and he's unimpressive in person. That was an important aspect of Paul's saying death is at work in us, that life would be at work in you. Persevering, you know, again, as that's an aspect of death working in us, so that death that is unto the working of Jesus' life in our mortal bodies also involves our persevering in those labors in spite of what we see, in spite of what we perceive, because we know his triumph in resurrection and we believe God for his purposes and work. We believe God. Having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. That's how faith works. I believe, therefore I respond. I believe, I respond. I believe, I respond. We also believe and therefore we speak. What is it we say to you, Corinthians? We say that we know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and present us together with you. Why is that important? Because when Paul looked at the Corinthians, he saw a big mess. Read the first Corinthian epistle. They were a mess. Their misuse of the gifts, their pride, the way they viewed women, you know, all of these various things that were going on in the church, it was a mess. He said, it's not that you lack knowledge, it's not that you lack the gifts, but there's this pride, there's this fleshliness that is governing you. And it burdened Paul. He didn't see good fruit at Corinth is what I'm saying, but he was confident because he knew the message he had brought to them and he knew what he had manifested to them and he had seen people lay hold of that. And so he could say it's with the spirit of faith that we say to you, Corinthians, that God is gonna raise you up together with us. He's gonna raise us up and he's gonna present us, you and me, to himself in that day. In spite of what I see, in spite of what I know, in spite of my experience with you, Paul believed Christ. He believed the Father's purpose in Christ for the church. He didn't believe the church. He believed God for the church. And that's been a message through the years that I've tried to impress on young guys preparing for the ministry because they're taught to think in pragmatic ways. Do this, you know, it's the gumball machine. Put in the penny, turn the knob, out comes the gumball. If you do it this way, it'll work this way. It'll look this way. And they get discouraged and they get frustrated because it doesn't work. And even if there's some pragmatic you know, of fruitfulness that they see, whatever it happens to be, the actual, you know, uh, the, the church's heaven on earth isn't realized in their experience. And it's hard, and it's agonizing, and it's frustrating, and it's discouraging. And it causes men to say, I guess I'm not gifted, I guess I'm not called. Or it causes them even more 
to say, God isn't faithful. He hasn't kept up his end of the bargain. I've been doing everything they told me to do. Why isn't it working? God isn't faithful. And Paul says, you don't look to the communities of believers for the truth of the power of God's gospel. You look to the triumph of God in Christ. And so Paul could say to the Corinthians, I know God is going to raise you up and present you together with me. And that more than anything, for what it's worth, is what I think pastors need to understand. What will sustain them? We have this ministry in accordance with the mercy of God. And it will bear its fruit. We may not see it. But it's not about our expectations. It's not about our desires. See, that's compromise. That's the temptation. I'll make it work. If I try this, if I try that, if I do this, if I do that. So Paul was absolutely assured of the triumph of God. And he saw the the Corinthians implicated in that. He saw, in spite of what he knew of them, in spite of what he'd experienced with them, in spite of all of the heartache, all of the grief, all of the accusations, all of the pain, all of the sorrow, he said, we do not lose heart. Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory that can't even be compared. We look not at what is seen, but what is unseen. What is seen is temporal. What is unseen is eternal. In the end, our faithfulness, whether as pastors, whether as Christians, it depends on our knowledge and conviction of the truth. This is why with young people, family faith has to move into an owned faith. Every kid is a Christian because if they are in a Christian home, they are what their parents are. And there has to be this motion from a family faith to an own faith. Because otherwise there will be no enduring when the day of trials come, right? In that day, it's not enough to say what my pappy said, what my mom said, what they think, what they believe, what my pastor says. Conviction of the truth, who Jesus was and is, what he's accomplished, who we are in relation to him, what he has called us to, what does it mean to live the triumphant Christian life? What is our destiny in him? Paul said, I don't lose heart because I know whom I have believed. I'm persuaded that he is able to keep, to guard that which I've entrusted to him against that day. I'm persuaded concerning him. And part of that recognition is the recognition, part of that conviction is recognizing and really being governed by the reality, again, that God has inaugurated this new creation in Jesus and we are sharers in it. Why do I say that? Because we're not just hanging on, we're not just hunkering down, waiting until we can finally exit this world. And a lot of Christians live that way. They just want to hunker down. Hide until the rapture, whatever it is. We're not hanging on. We're not hunkering down. We embody in ourselves Jesus' triumph. Do you believe that? That when we were dead, we were raised up with Christ and seated in the heavenly realm in him, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. Do we believe that? Do we believe that we embody Jesus' triumph and we embody that good news of his triumph and we are servants and agents of that work and its renewal? These are the things that tell us, in principle at least, how we should be involved in culture, how we should be involved in politics, how we should be involved in all of the arenas of life. We embody the truth of God's triumph in Christ. We are the beginning of that work that will ultimately take the whole creation into its grasp. So we're not just waiting for something, God to do this new creation thing or this new heavens and new earth in the future. We're living in light of the consummation of what God has already put in place, both with respect to us and the wider creation. But we don't see it. Right? Even if we're honest, when we look in the mirror 
And it's important, again, for pastors to help people to understand this. When you look in the mirror, do you see the kind of triumph that Paul paints? And I would argue often not, if we're honest, right? We have to believe God for ourselves, just as we have to believe God for the church. We live by faith and not by sight. And faith and sight are the only two ways human beings can live. There are two ways we can live, faith or sight. Well, what is sight? Sight is the natural way that we live. It's thinking, judging, acting, living out our days based on what we know, what we've seen, what we've experienced, what we can predict. What life has told us is true. Life by sight. Life by our senses, by our experiences, by our perceptions, by the things that we have seen to be the way the world works. Faith is the truly human option. Faith is the other option, the truly human option. Not wishful thinking. Faith isn't wishful thinking. Keep the faith, brother. Just believe it's going to work out. It's not that. It's not abstracted hope. Faith is the operation of active sonship that's determined by our relationship with God. Faith is the life of active sonship. It's, a, it's the living out of a relationship of knowledge, intimacy, confidence, devotion. It's living the way Jesus lived. And often people say, Jesus didn't have faith. He didn't need to get saved. We think of faith in terms of the mechanism for getting saved. And we say, he didn't have faith. He didn't need faith. No, that's to completely misunderstand the way it works. Faith is the life of sonship. Jesus absolutely lived a life of faith. Dependent, submissive, trust. This is the test that we're going to see in Psalm 9. This is the way in which Jesus was tempted at the point uh, of, of his wilderness testing, as expressed even in Psalm 91. Faith is the reason that Paul could proclaim with assurance the future glory that awaited him with the Corinthians in spite of what he saw. If Paul was walking by sight, he couldn't say that to the Corinthians. He'd say, boy, I don't see very good fruit. I'm not sure you all are saved. Where's the good fruit? He didn't walk by sight, he walked by faith. In spite of all he knew, all he had experienced with them, he could speak the way he did because he spoke with the spirit of faith. And saints, this is why, and pastors, this is why we don't lose heart. As much as we want to, as much as we're pressed to, we don't lose heart irrespective of what life holds because we know whom we have believed. And however it looks in our experience, however it works out, God, God's mercy over his works will bear its fruit. It will triumph. We're not responsible for that outcome. We're responsible for manifesting the truth, embodying the life of Christ. That's enough. And the table, as we come today, it, I mean, it reminds us of that truth. The table is a tangible, palpable taste, sensory reminder of who we are, what Jesus accomplished, what it is to be sharers in him. What is it that we're called to? What is it that's held out in front of us? And as we now come to a time of even some uh, meditation, reflection, that needs to be our focus what is it to be sharers in Christ? And what does that do for our confidence? What does that do for our perseverance? What does that do for the way we view one another? What does that do for the way we view the church? The way we live out the Christian life. Let me pray and then we will have a couple of minutes of meditation. Father, I know, at least I feel like I say this all the time, but these are really very simple things. And yet they're very profound things. They're things that often escape our notice, certainly that escape our conscious notice day by day. 
I would venture there are probably very few, if any, present today who would say, gee, I never heard any of this before. I never thought about any of this. But we do need the constant reminder because life does press us. The church presses us. Faithfulness presses us. We are perplexed. We are often struck down. We are hard pressed in a myriad of ways. And in all of these things, we have to understand and truly hold tightly to and proclaim to one another by the manifestation of persevering faithful lives. The truth of lives hidden with Christ in God. The truth that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That in him we are more than conquerors who overwhelmingly triumph. And as we come to the table, Father, I pray that you will help us to come with that mindset. That Christ isn't just the one we need in our life. He is our life. If we have life, it is because we share in his life. If we have hope, it is because we share in his life. If we persevere, if we are faithful, if we proclaim this gospel, it is as the living out of his life. And when we come to the table, that's what we're reminded of. And we come together because we are fellow sharers. If we are members of him, we are members of one another. And that unbreakable union needs to be our focus even in terms of understanding and growing in the sense of unity, what it is to be one in the Messiah. So help us as we come, Father. Help us as we pray and meditate. And I do ask that this word today would be a word of encouragement. Yes, exhortation, but unto the encouragement that our God is faithful. And our faithfulness is not in vain. Help us in these things. For Christ's sake we pray.